Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I am not Jordan Rubin. After weeks and weeks of trying, I am still not Jordan Rubin. I am uh, David Schultz, producer of this very podcast. Uh, Jordan, of course, is still on paternity leave. Kimberly, um, we got 11 opinions this week. That's like a, a SCOTUS dozen. Um, how did, <laughs> before we get into that, how did you survive this week? Well, you know, David, we have a few tricks up our sleeves. We do pre-write all of the cases. So, you know, it's a it's a busy day. But one thing the Supreme Court has been doing, it's been releasing opinions starting at 10. And then if there are multiple opinions, it will release them every 10 minutes. So that gives us some time to just sort of fill out our, our pre-writes um, to collect our breaths and to get ready for the next case. So a couple of long days this week with 11 cases, really 10 with um, one non-decision. But it was busy. I do think, though, the court still has 18 more to go in two weeks. I do think the justices will try to hit that informal cutoff of the end of June. So it's not like we're going to get it any easier in these next couple of weeks. And these cases that are still outstanding, well, there's some pretty big ones. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we would love to talk about all 11 or I guess 10 of these opinions, but um, actually we, we don't want to. Uh, <laughs> so we're just going to we're going to highlight three um, of opinions that came out this week that we thought were really interesting. And let's start off with Arizona versus San Francisco. This is a case about immigration. Uh, and it sounds like the Supreme Court did not really go as far as it could have here. What, what did it do? Uh, it did nothing. So Arizona versus San Francisco was sort of about the Trump era public charge rule. And this is a rule that was ex- um, expanded under the Trump administration to, uh, you know, turn away the immigrants who are likely to be on public assistance. So I think of things like food stamps, housing assistance. And uh, the case, though, wasn't actually ever about the public charge rule. Uh, It was about the fact that the Biden administration wanted to get rid of the rule. It was actually one of the first things that the Biden administration did was to say, hey, we don't want this um, rule around anymore. And it really used as kind of um, its basis for doing away with the rule this this very case in which the lower court um, had said that you know, the public charge rule wasn't valid. And so the Biden administration did some unique maneuvering. uh, And not only did they try to keep red states from jumping in and defending the law when the federal government wouldn't, but they also repealed the rule without uh, notice and comment, which is something we've talked a lot about here on this podcast. But it's typically something that administrations have to do when they want to nix a rule. That's a bold move. How did it work? out? (laughs) So the Supreme Court you know, they, they just issued a one-line opinion um, doing what we call digging a case where they dismiss it as improvidently granted. Um, it basically says, like, whoops, we didn't mean um, to waste all your time and resources and getting you to brief the case and argue it, um, but we're not actually going to decide the ruling. And usually that's all we get. We used to see a lot more of these digs, um, maybe like five or 10 terms ago, but the court has taken some steps to try to uh, do a little more kicking of the tires before they take cases to try and avoid these digs. Sometimes they're unavoidable. This was the second one this term. Um, But one thing that's unusual about this dig here was that it had a concurrence, um, which we don't normally see. And this was by 
the chief justice, and it was joined by uh, three other justices. And I think the point of the concurrence was to chide the Biden administration for these unique moves. Uh, you know, the chief justice said, look, those are, these are important issues, but there's a whole lot else going on in this case. Um, there's a lot of other you know, issues that kind of muddy the water and will keep us from really deciding what we want to decide. So we're not going to decide it. And um, everybody go home. But they, I think they wanted to make clear that they didn't really approve of what the Biden administration had done here, kind of a, a warning shot, hey, don't do this again. How does that feel as an attorney? Like you get to argue in front of the Supreme Court uh, and then, you know, you're waiting on, on an opinion and then you get a dig. Like that's got to be gutting, right? Well, I imagine for you and your clients, it is pretty gutting. I will say that as just kind of having a the trophy of having a Supreme Court argument, look, half of the people who argue with the Supreme Court lose. So if you don't really lose, like, hey, you're doing better than half of them, right? Uh, so I think, you know, just getting an argument is is still going to be valuable for the attorneys. But yeah, of course, for your clients, it's very unsatisfactory. They went through this whole other round of litigation. And in the end, what happens is that the lower court decision remains in place. So um, I'm sure that is pretty frustrating. But you didn't lose. Uh, glass glass half full. <laughs> but you didn't lose. And I, I suspect that this is not going to be the end of um, litigation over the public charge rule. So it's not like Arizona and the other red states are done here. Um, actually, the attorney general's office in Arizona got back to me uh, the other day saying, like, we're still looking at what we're going to be doing going forward. But this isn't over. All right. Let's move on to American Hospital Association. This is a Chevron case that doesn't mention Chevron. Obviously, let's explain what Chevron is first and then get into the opinion. Sure. So Chevron is a really important kind of baseline rule in administrative law. And you've heard me say it on this podcast before, and I'll say it again, that administrative law is exceedingly boring, but very, very important. It touches, I'm not exaggerating when I say it touches every aspect of American lives. So this one is on hospitals. We have a case still yet to be decided about climate change. And we heard earlier about vaccine mandates, all of them centering on administrative law. So the Chevron doctrine is really important. Basically, what it says is that if there's a statute that's ambiguous and an agency that is tasked with you know, carrying out that statute interprets the rule in a way that's at least reasonable, then courts should really defer to the agency. And, you know, I was kind of expecting when we had some of the particularly Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, the first two Trump nominees to the court, that we would see some really big changes in this area of the law, particularly, you know, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have talked about the problems uh, with Chevron and how it really takes away a lot of the court's power that, you know, it's the court's job, the judiciary's job to say what the law is and not agencies. And so, you know, we, we've seen some maneuvers around the Chevron doctrine and other administrative law doctrines, but we haven't seen the kind of really huge shifts um, that we think of when we think of like what the court's going to be doing with abortion and guns. So um, still, you know, this case did uh, do some stuff with the admin law, but just did it very quietly. So Kimberly, what actually did happen with this non-Chevron Chevron case? So, you know, I, I think the thing that's really important to know about this case is that, yes, it did not mention Chevron. You can control F and type in Chevron and you will get zero results. But it's not as if 
Um, it did not affect Chevron. So basically, Chevron has these two steps. Uh, the first step is you're supposed to look to see if a statute is ambiguous, and then you're supposed to, if it is, move on to step two and see if the agency's interpretation is reasonable. If it is, then you know you defer to the agency. What happened here was, without saying Chevron step one, the court decided it on the first step of Chevron. They looked at the statute. They said, we know what the statute means. It's not ambiguous, and so you know here's what it means. Um, and so that actually could be pretty significant. I think we tend to see lower courts giving kind of short shrift to Chevron step one, at least as the way that the majority of the court um, sees it now. And so if you're going to have a more robust reading of the statute at the first step, it's going to shrink the times where Chevron actually comes into play. So it is significant, even though it didn't um, you know, didn't say Chevron, um, but kind of just a little more sneaky and in some ways a little bit more um, dangerous in that the court isn't really being upfront with what it's doing in the same way that it is, you know, with Roe versus Wade and just saying it's time for it to go. That's really interesting. So it's, I guess, ambiguities in the eye of the beholder. I mean, some people think of statutes ambiguous, but it sounds like the court was like, no, it seems pretty clear to me. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, I think that's exactly what Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and the others in the majority would say is like, this is what judges do all the time. You know, we can look at a statute and tell you what it means. Um, We don't have to go searching for ambiguity, um, which I think would be um, their criticism of what some of the lower courts are doing. Got it. Uh, All right. Now, finally, the third case that we're going to talk about, uh, Isleta del Sur, This case uh, is a a tribal case, and what I'm really interested in talking about here is the lineup. Um, So let's get into what the case is, and then we'll move on to the lineup. So the case is really this long-running dispute uh, between the Yasleta del Sur tribe in Texas and over their gaming activities. Now, gaming is obviously very important um, to Native American tribes, and, you know, the question here was how much... Texas could restrict the t- the tribe's gaming activities. And the ruling basically said, look, Texas, you can't treat the tribe any worse than you would treat, you know, any other entity in Texas. Um, and so that was a win for the tribes. One thing that's really interesting, as you mentioned, is the lineup. So we have Justices Gorsuch and Justice Barrett joining the Democratic-appointed uh, justices to, in this 5-4 case ruling for the tribes. And that's notable uh, for a couple we- reasons. First, tribes up until uh, really Justice Gorsuch got on the bench, did not do so well in the Supreme Court. And listeners may be surprised to know that this hasn't really been an ideological um, issue for the justices. And so one thing I learned when I was uh, studying up on Justice Gorsuch for his confirmation was that Justice Ginsburg really often ruled against Native American tribes. And so, um, you know, that that has been a change since Justice Gorsuch has been on the bench. He comes from the Tenth Circuit, which, because of the geographics, deals with a lot of these Native American cases. And we saw tribes come out really strongly in support of him, kind of cautiously optimistic that he might, you know, change kind of the atmosphere for tribes in the Supreme Court. And that's what we've seen um, from Justice Gorsuch. He's been a really powerful advocate. And then now it's notable that we have Justice Barrett in the majority. 
Um, this was the second tribal case in which Barrett had sided with the tribes. Um, interestingly, she wrote an earlier decision about a double jeopardy case involving the tribes where Justice Gorsuch was in dissent. But important for both of them um, was this idea of tribal sovereignty. So we don't have any background from Justice Barrett on tribal cases, just not that many come up through the Seventh Circuit where she came up. Um, so this could be a hint that, hey, things might be looking up for tribes in the Supreme Court. Of course, there's a major, well, not so major, I guess it could have been more major, um, case still pending out of Oklahoma. Um, we'll see uh, where Justice Barrett lands in that one. So, Kimberly, now, I mean, tribes have known for a while that they have an ally on the court in Justice Gorsuch. Seems like they may have another ally in Justice Barrett. Um, if you're an attorney representing uh, a tribe in any case, is it like open season? Are you just, you know, rushing to get to the Supreme Court to like get your case heard? Because it seems like there's been a sea change here when it comes to tribal law. It really does seem like um, like the tide has really changed. And, I, and you know, I... I have talked to some, you know, attorneys who work on tribal issues who said in the past they would try very hard not to get their cases before the Supreme Court. Often that wasn't uh, difficult because they would be on the losing end and they just would have to not appeal. Um, But yeah, now that's definitely changed where if you have a tribal issue that you've been sitting on for a while, you want to you want to put in your petition for cert and you're almost, you know, it seems like you've got Justice Gorsuch who's going to take up your case and probably rule on your side. And then it's just a matter of getting three other justices to vote to hear your case and then maybe Justice Barrett to rule in your favor. That's just amazing how fast that did a 180. I mean, it's it's one thing for an issue to sort of, uh, you know, change gradually over time. But it seems like just with the personnel change at the court in the last, you know, five years or less, like – it's been a complete one. I mean, is that, am I exaggerating that or is that really the case? No, David, you got it. It has really been uh, a complete 180. And I think the biggest kind of indication of that was the case from, um, now I think it was a few terms ago called McGirt, which Jordan is really our expert on. But basically, you know, it it did really have this robust um, kind of view of tribal sovereignty and kind of uh, particularly in relation to criminal law, in a way that we haven't seen. And there is a follow-up case to that. Um, but importantly, you know, one of the questions in that case was, should the Supreme Court overturn its recent decision in McGirt? And the court didn't even take up that question. You know, that's kind of settled law now. Um, so yeah, it really does seem to be kind of a, a major change for uh, for tribal law. Okay, uh, so aside from the 11 opinions um, that we got this week, 10, depending on your, uh, you know, stance. Uh, The justices also uh, were chatting outside of the court. Uh, It seems like Justice Sotomayor gave an interesting speech. Uh, What did she have to say? Right. So Justice Sotomayor was speaking at the American Constitution Society, which is a um, progressive group, kind of a counter to the Federalist Society. And she actually, her speech was very, taking a very rosy view of the Supreme Court future and kind of um, kind of encouraging progressives not to give up on their causes. And um, in particular, she had some very nice words. She picked out um, Justice Thomas to highlight their friendship and what a great person he is and how he really cares about people and how he's the one justice of the court who knows everybody's name and will ask about their kids and, you know, big events in their lives. And 
I thought that was really interesting given what else was going on in the world at the very same time. So listeners are probably aware that the January 6th um, committee is having hearings right now. And just a couple hours before that, we heard that the committee plans to call Justice Thomas's wife, Jenny Thomas, um, to chat uh, about her potential involvement in the January 6th riot at the Capitol. And so that just, I, I don't know if she was just unaware that that was going on or probably more likely she specifically called out Justice Thomas because she knew what was going on. Um, but it was just a really stark contrast to kind of the way that Justice Sotomayor views the court and the way that I think the rest of the public is consuming the court. And also, that's surprising to me because didn't Justice Thomas give a speech a couple of weeks ago where he, I mean, this is like a totally unfair summarization of what he said, but basically just like everyone's mean to me. I, you know, this is, I don't, I don't like being here. Justice Thomas and May did give um, a really striking speech in which he talked about how the atmosphere at the Supreme Court was not the same as it used to be. Um, and he talked about some of his older colleagues and how they were really easy to get along with, um, kind of sort of suggesting that maybe that's not the case anymore, um, which is really different from what Justice Sotomayor had to say. I will say Justice Sotomayor kind of is a real optimist. And um, even just some of the advice that she gave to these young attorneys, she was talking about like, somebody asked, like, how do you not lose hope when you're kind of in the situation where, um, you know, there's a 6-3 conservative majority? And she's like, well, what else can you do? What are you going to do? Lay down and let the truck run over you? No, you have to do something. So that's just her outlook. Uh, I think she she thinks she has something up her sleeve, but we'll see. Um, I, I will say that's kind of uh, in contrast to what I suspect her some of her dissents will be um, in the cases we get in the next two weeks. Um, I don't think she's going to pull any punches and kind of put a rosy spin on you know, like the Mississippi abortion ruling or the guns ruling. Uh, but at least when she's talking on the public, particularly to young people, I think she has this message of kind of hope and things are going to be okay. Well, maybe an olive branch from Justice Sotomayor to Justice Thomas there. Um, interesting. And, you know, David, she did actually, and, you know, this isn't new for her. She did when after Justice Kavanaugh's really contentious uh, confirmation hearings. You remember that? Um, Uh, Yeah, vaguely. Right afterward, I think in front of another progressive group, she talked about how the Supreme Court was a family and how they were welcoming Justice Kavanaugh with open arms. So not something new for her, um, not something out of character, but something interesting to see that it's still going on despite kind of some radical changes that we think are going on within the Supreme Court. Yeah. Okay, Kimberly, let's uh, bring this in for a landing. Um, Next week, what do we uh, know? What are we expecting? Um, what should we be on the lookout for? So next week, the court is closed for on Monday for the Juneteenth holiday. This is a new holiday for the justices. So they will be issuing opinions on Tuesday and Thursday. I said at the top that we have 18 more opinions to go. So I expect next week to be busy like this week. Um, and then just one more week before that informal cutoff. It sure does seem like we're going to be um, hitting that, if not getting really close to it. So you can expect lots and lots of rulings next week. And if you want to find out about those rulings, uh, whether or not you are Jordan Rubin, who is reading uh, along from home, I'm sure no, he is. No, he's not reading along from home. A guy can hope. <laughs> um, you can follow us along at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. 
climate change, air pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species. It's a lot. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join us on the Parts Per Billion podcast every other Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Bloomberg Law's Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.